Greetings, Alpha Seekers. Welcome to the New Gen Ventures podcast. We're down to one listener, folks, so we're really on the bubble here. So you're going to have to keep listening, whoever you are, and I think I know who you are. Uh, as long as you do, I'll keep uh, hopping on. So I was I just wasted a little time, you know, procrastinating from what I really should do. I work seven days a week, but I don't work eight hours a day. Um looking into something that was kind of puzzling, which is a Johns Hopkins report that, and this has been so underreported, I think, for obvious reasons, The there have actually been more COVID deaths this year, 2021, year one of the Biden administration, than there were in 2020, which is amazing to me. Um, the 2020 figure... It's anywhere between 345 and 385 deaths. And uh, apparently, to date, we're not done with this year, obviously, and we're probably headed into one of the worst periods. Uh, You know, holidays are going to take a toll. Winter, people are indoors with each other, unmasked. I mean, I am too now, you know. I may be too cocky here. But uh, here's the story, and this is from the Wall Street Journal, okay? But uh, it's the news hall, not the editorial. The number of, and there's a big difference, the number of U.S. COVID-19 deaths recorded in 2021 has surpassed the toll in 2020, according to federal data uh, in Johns Hopkins University. The total number is 771,000 about, uh, in the U.S., and that puts the pandemic long total at more than twice the 385,000 from last year. Uh, so you can do the math on that, but that's about right, you know, and we're not done yet. So, you know, I have thought to myself, geez, what if Hillary had won in 2016? Would we have done a better job of uh, limiting the casualties and morbidity and mortality, as they say, from COVID. And based on this, I'm not so sure we would have, you know. And this story has not been reported. It does not fit the narrative. But there it is. (laughs) So what does that tell you? Two things. Number one, it's not just because Trump was in power uh, that this was a, a bad outcome, uh, and number two, that it's not yet all that safe to go back in the water, apparently. Now, I think most of the deaths are unvaccinated people, and I am triple vaxxed. So as I say, I feel, you know, almost like invulnerable, you know. But maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. That definitely gets my attention, I'll tell you that. I mean, the media's obsessed with uh, Kyle Rittenhouse and the other thing down in Georgia, you know. Meanwhile, hundreds of thousands of people died under the Biden administration. God, if Trump was in office, you know what they'd be doing with that. So there's another article. I went through the trib today, not much to tell frankly. But somewhere in there I thought there was an article in Africa 
has surprised... Oh, yeah, here it is. In Africa, the pandemic that wasn't. Uh, scientists emphasize that obtaining accurate COVID-19 data is extremely difficult, okay? Uh, but there's something mysterious going on in Africa. The COVID death tolls, at least the reported ones, are very low compared to certainly what was feared uh, and compared to the Western world. Some researchers say the continent's younger population, the average age is 20 in Africa versus 43 in Western Europe. I don't know if that means that the, uh, the lifespans are shorter or what, but... Uh, and they have lower rates of urbanization and tend to spend time outdoors. Uh, and there's obviously more heat and humidity. Now, there may be some genetic reasons, or it may be that they've been exposed to other diseases. Another theory, Christian Happy, H-A-P-P-I, a happy guy. The African Center of Excellence for Genomics of Infectious Diseases at Redeemer University in Nigeria says authorities are used, used to curbing outbreaks even without vaccines and credited the extensive networks of community health workers. It's not always about how much money you have or how sophisticated your hospitals are. Uh, like some of these countries close the borders before COVID even arrived. I don't know how you close the borders in some of these areas. We can't even do it here. <clears throat> The coronavirus did pummel South Africa, 89,000 people death, dead. Um, now, what that implies to me is that the more ur urban areas you have, the more you've got a problem, right? The dense, more densely people are packed in, you know, buildings that are <coughs> not terribly well ventilated. So it could be that civilization itself makes you vulnerable. I thought all along that was what it was in the U.S., particularly globalization and civilization, because you got people coming over in tightly packed little metal containers, uh, perfect to circulate the, vi the virus. And of course, those by that I mean the planes. You know, virus uh, projectiles with wings. COVID deaths in, in Africa make up just 3% of the global total. And uh, I don't know what percentage of population Africa is, but I'm sure it's bigger than 3%. In Nigeria, they recorded 3,000 deaths out of 200 million people. We get that every two or three days. So, you know, so much for white supremacy. Uh... They quote a Nigerian virologist, Oyewale Tamori, suggests that Africa might not even need as many vaccines as the U.S., but uh, it's controversial, but it's being seriously discussed among African scientists, reminiscent of the British decision in March, last March, to let COVID freely infect the population. And I think that was like March of 2020, that 2021, because that was a costly decision. But Dr. Johannes Marisa, president of the Medical and Dental Private Practitioners of Zimbabwe Association, says uh, people should remain very vigilant. Complacency is what is going to destroy us because we may be caught unaware. Well, 
still, that's pretty interesting to me. Um, and let's keep it on the rational side, and then we'll get to the emotional part of the Tribune later. So, Jill Schlesinger provides some good things. Jill on money, which is recommended. You can subscribe to her newsletter if you like. Just Google her and you'll find her. The economy in October added 531,000 new jobs. Uh, and we've had 6 million so far this year. Average 582,000 per month. So, things are good, job-wise. 18.2 million jobs have been added since April 2020, uh, but there's 4.2 million jobs uh, fewer, 4.2 million fewer jobs than there were pre-pandemic in February 2020, and 4.7 million pe fewer people working, okay? So jobs versus people are two different stats, obviously. Last, in the spring, we had a, well, in summer, really, million new jobs, June and July. Then Delta was ready, even if we weren't, and that slowed down hiring. So Delta's really the story here, which is not really being reported. Because it makes, I think, the Biden administration look worse than Trump. If that's possible. Uh, unemployment rate is now at a pandemic low of 4.6. But it was lower than that before the pandemic. Labor force participation, however, uh, has been at or below 61.7%. Down from 63.4%. And that's the marginal you know, rate that is creating the labor shortage. You know, that's almost two percentage points in terms of labor participation. That's a lot of people, as Dean Martin would have said. Uh, so the great resignation and then early retirements. A lot of people were on the bubble retiring. They said, eh, you know, I'll, I'll do it now because they were getting their stimmy. That helped. Smaller number of people working explains why there are labor shortages, which is why wages are going up. Uh, very simple, folks. Average hourly earnings up by 5% year over year, and those increases are arguably necessary as Americans contend with higher prices. And, of course, those of us who are children of the 50s remember the ugly 70s, when you get into the death, deathly wage price spiral and you get that psychology going and that's when people start giving out raises because everybody seems like they're getting them. I can remember every year I'd get a 10% raise when I was working at the wards in the 70s and at AMA in the 80s. I mean, you just expected it. And then all of a sudden they stopped coming when the inflation went down. And then when you started to get deflation, you actually got ahead of the game. But, you know, people forget that, but they're about to be reminded, I'm afraid. And it doesn't necessarily get you anywhere. Because when people get higher wages, then that inspires uh, retailers and landlords to raise prices. And the whole thing just keeps going. Until somebody pours cold water on it, which was Paul Volcker and Ronald Reagan. 
Although Carter appointed Volcker. You got to remember that. Economist Joel Neroff says, this report is a clear, unambiguous reminder, that's the jobs report, that you should not judge the economy on one month's number. Okay? And the policymakers need to, either we need to get this reporting data better, and it seems to me that you certainly could, or politicians and other policymakers need to realize you know, you can't use that data to make policy because it's so subject to revisions. In this case, all positive. So if you justify your stimulus by the bad job numbers, then you're pouring gasoline on an inflationary fire. That's the deal. So here's an article about uh, what employers can do to retain workers. And I mean, you can retain me real easy, but one of my clients decided not to. Um, however, I've got another one on the on the burner here at Rush, so I hope I get that. I'd rather do medical than legal anyway. No. So, uh, they just basically interview people about, you know, what could your employer have done to retain you? And this one person from Bloomington says, you know, working in the corporate arena isn't something I really want to do. I'm going to be a teacher or an EMT or something with hands-on involvement in others. Well, I know a guy who did that. Good luck. You may regret that. I think it's a he, T-E-R-R-Y. Uh, here's another one who works for a startup and is tired of that because he's got a family now. So it's all over the board, really. <laughs> Okay, so year-end self-evaluation. It's the year-end, and I have to do a self-evaluation. So here's what they say you should do that. Be honest. Be uncompromising with yourself. Uh, Identify areas you can address in 2022 and beyond, assuming there is a beyond, other than the great beyond. I mean, at my age, you never know. Consider the good and the bad. Uh, it's been a weird couple of years. Don't be afraid to work that into your evaluation. I, the pandemic actually didn't hurt me at all. <laughs> I actually did better. I think because the whole thing has shifted back to uh, work from home, and nobody cares how old you are, you know. On the Internet, nobody knows you're a dog, and nobody knows you're old. Or male, or white, or anything. Nobody cares. Um, all the drawbacks that I've been thinking have been part of my challenge. So write your first draft in pen or pencil to more directly connect to your thoughts. Label one side with a plus and the other with a minus. Write down the things you've done well on the plus side and areas where you've fallen short on the other. Well, you know, I'll run out of ink on that other side, but um, yeah, I did some things right this year. I got some business, which was good. Uh, and I lost, but I lost some business. But you know, at least if you if you're losing business, that means you're able to get it in the first place. So. Accomplishments don't have to be groundbreaking. Good. Took a walk during lunch most days. I got to start walking. That's true. Stopped wasting time. <laughs> Social media. 
Working on that, my screen time was five hours last week, which is up. Too busy arguing with people on Facebook about things that I will never change their minds on. On the flip side, negatives can be inconsistent effort in the morning. Yeah, I could do that inconsistent effort all day long. I mean, I'm going to try to start working eight hours a day, you know, either for my clients or for my own company to develop my marketing and such. Switch perspectives. Try to use the perspective of a client or coworker that you value as an employee. Don't necessarily try to put yourself in the evaluating shoes of your friends at work. Imagine yourself through the lens of a manager you admire or a coworker. Well, in my case, it would be through the lens of a client. And I do that, and I usually feel guilty. But, you know, I still bill them. Um, here's something that I saw. I was flipping through channels, and I must have hit the wrong button on the remote, so QBC popped up, and they were selling some kind of massager. And <laughs> if you've ever seen these shows, it's like usually two people, usually both women, just singing the praises of some <laughs> whatever it is, piece of junk probably. Uh, and this one woman, it was a massager, one of these, you know, uh, muscle massage things they have in health clubs and such I could actually probably use one I'm aching all the time I don't know if they work but it's like 300 bucks so forget it and this woman says if you have a body you need this I thought that is the <laughs> that's a hall of fame you know pitch because we all have bodies right so everybody needs it everybody Now, here's another one on careers. Now, most of you are done with your career. Unfortunately, I'm not. Okay, details matter when considering success. Focus on the how, not just the why. And uh, this is about your resume. I helped her change her resume so that her work on building the product, her day-to-day -day responsibilities and rituals that led to increased sales was front and center. I've heard just the opposite, you know. I think this is a very subjective field. Now, here's another expert that says, uh, nobody cares about how you got to the middle of the curve, but the devil's in the details. It's the minutia where the magic happens. It's the small things like following up on emails or getting a proposal in it the same day versus the next day that makes a difference. Eh, maybe so. Um, James Evans, who is a pharmaceutical sales rep, says he's a very good note taker. Uh, and so he analyzed all these notes and began to figure out what worked and what didn't. Career consultant Fannin says note takers make the best employees because when they read over their notes, they're constantly assessing their work. Well, you know what I've started to do? I used to be a very assiduous note-taker. And as I get older, I find I'm not, you know. So what I do is I use the Microsoft Word uh, record function. And, like, every day I get on this LinkedIn uh, mastery clubhouse group, and I don't talk anymore because I'm just transcribing it. 
And I'm thinking, well, you know, and most of the time, honestly, I never look back at it. But I'm thinking, well, someday I'm going to write a book about how to be a LinkedIn genius and me and like 200,000 other people. But um, I'll go back to those notes and there's my treasure trove, you know. But it's good, like, when I have client meetings, I, I use that. And then I've got a transcript of what was said. And it's not perfect by any means. Uh, it is, you know, kind of, you have to go through and there's a lot of gibberish. But um, I'd say it's maybe 80%, which is close enough, you know. And you can basically figure out what was said and, and you know, edit it and, you got what you need. So so that's a little tip. I know some of you are on board meetings, in, on boards and in meetings. So. But what you got to watch is it turns itself off every once in a while, so you got to keep an eye on it. Now, here's something I didn't know about, and this is another story. This is on page three of the trip, but uh, there's a thing called humanitarian parole, um, which is a way you can... Uh, get people, I guess, temporarily admitted into the United States for humanitarian reasons. I never heard of it. Uh, I'm surprised it isn't used with people on the border more. But this is for the Afghanis. But the trouble is it requires an in-person interview, uh, meaning those in Afghanistan need to get out of the country first. So here we left all these people behind like we did in Vietnam, and they have to go to the embassy, which is closed. And I'm sure monitored if it was open. So maybe Joe could get the damned embassy open, um, or a consulate at least, and maybe instead of buying votes with all the federal uh, largesse, they could, you know, try to help some people out that we left there who are starving to death and selling their children for money, especially women of color, right? Well... When the color don't vote, don't cut no ice with Joe. And uh, and maybe we could have them do these meetings by Skype or something, huh? Because they can't get to an embassy. You know, people, I put a post out on Facebook, you know, lest we forget. But honestly, I've processed my anger on that. I've managed my anger. Now, uh, virus rules spur protests in Europe. Austria is taking a very, you know, harsh approach to this. And the far right is marching and, you know, it's a mess. Alex Schellenberg is the chancellor. People, you know, just don't want to take this vaccine, which is insane in my mind. But um, you've had... uh, Protest Now, in Austria, first of all, you can't leave the house except for, and there's all sorts of exceptions, unless you're vaccinated. And then they're going to mandate the vaccine as of February 1. And only 66% of the 8.9 million Austrians, not many Austrians, are vaccinated. So that might get ugly. I wonder if Joe's going to do that here, because then the fun begins. And I don't know if he can continue to take the death toll in the economic chaos. He's going to be very vulnerable in the midterms. Now, there's an article about 
uh, U.S. seeking balance while Russia masses troops. So we seek balance and they mass troops. Reminds me of Stalin, you know, when talking about the Pope. How many divisions does the Pope have? Putin has all the cards. And those of uh, our fellow citizens who decry the U.S.'s imperialism, who used to be mostly fellow travelers with the Ruskies, must just be delighted because, you know, there's not a thing we can do about it. He has all the cards. Uh, and sometimes I think to myself, well, you know, this whole nation-state thing, you know, in today's world, aren't we kind of beyond that? It's the one-worlder sentiment. But in a world where uh, powerful nation-states are the norm, I'd rather be a powerful nation-state than that. And if you don't think that's true, ask somebody who's from Bosnia or Poland or one of these or Ukraine, uh, or Taiwan, you know, if you'd like to be weak, you know, talk to somebody who is. Now, there's different quotes here. Uh, our, our defense secretary, whose name is Lloyd Austin, we're not exactly sure what Mr. Putin is up to. Anthony Blinken, Anthony, who is secretary of state, we don't have clarity into Moscow's intentions, but we do know its playbook. Now, here's Mike Quigley quoted in an AP article. He's a member of the Intelligence Committee. Well, now, he says we a better understanding of what he's up to is critical to avoid mistakes that have started great wars. And then he says any U.S. response must be calibrated to avoid being an appeaser or a provocateur. Well, that's a tough tightrope to walk. Now, speaking to Ukraine's foreign minister early this month, Blinken said Putin's playbook was for Russia to build up forces near the border and then invade, claiming falsely that it was provoked. But then he's quoted as saying, we're not sure what he's up to? <laughs> I know what he's up to. Uh, NATO Secretary General Jen Stoltenberg said the alliance is seeing an unusual concentration of Russian forces, warning that the same type of force was used by Moscow in the past to intervene in neighboring countries. Well, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure what he's up to. U.S. officials don't believe an invasion is imminent. Again, that reminds me of Stalin when the Germans built up troops, like three million troops. He didn't think an invasion was imminent. Putin has also ramped up his dismissal of an independent Ukraine. In an essay published in July, he asserts that Ukrainians and Russians are one people and the true sovereignty of Ukraine is possible only in partnership with Russia. What do you need to know? These people have their, they're ostriches. They've got their heads in the sand. And so Bill Burns, who's CIA director, went to Moscow, spoke to Putin by phone, meaning he didn't even get an interview. That shows you how seriously Putin takes us. Germany and France have affirmed support for Ukraine, just like they did for Poland. Well, France did for Poland in World War II. Ultimately, the U.S. has few good apparent options to stop Putin were he to press forward. Imposing more sanctions is unlikely to influence his behavior. And in fact, we waived sanctions related to the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, 
which will carry Russian gas directly to Germany. Uh, and if we do do sanctions, he can just cut the gas off to Europe and watch him freeze <laughs> while, they, while they go green, you know. Two analysts for the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace say Putin may want to send a message to Washington that it must treat Russia as a major power that cannot be marginalized on the U.S. agenda. But they also described Ukraine as Putin's unfinished business. Well, watch for that to happen. And again, it wouldn't surprise me if they coordinated that with China. They're clearly working together. And if China goes after Taiwan while Russia goes after Ukraine, you know, we'll be essentially in a two-front war that everybody knows we're not even going to fight. So... Now, Clarence Page wrote a column about wokeness being a religion and Trumpism being a religion, and I think he's probably on to something there. John McWhorter's latest book he talks about, Woke Racism, How a New Religion Has Betrayed Black America. Now, John, I think, is black. Uh, Mr. McWhorter foregoes the current woke fashion by spelling black with a capital B instead of the lowercase b. And then white, of course, is a lowercase w. And, you know, those things used to mean proper noun versus common noun. And I don't think you can have it both ways. But instead, it's kind of like, you know, it's a political statement now. One asks, has the cultural left along with some major institutions and companies gone too far in embracing anti-racist ideas. Clarence says, I have to say yes. Pundits, and, and Clarence, of course, is black. Maybe he wants to be lowercase b. Pundits and others have found ample fodder in commentary about unfair presumptions of white privileges, lowercase w, and black victimhood, uppercase b. And I mean, if I was the right a letter to the editor, I would say, well, look, you know, uh, Clarence is black and has a column, and I'm white and I don't. What's up with that? Who's privileged? These these assumptions about black victimhood and white uh, privilege don't hold up, don't always stand up under closer examination. And if you're from the South Side, you know plenty of white people who are not privileged. I still bristle, for example, he says, over a white Chicago law professor who had to face disciplinary process for quoting the N-word in a class, reading it from the text of a court case, or the San Francisco school board's decision to remove the name of Abraham Lincoln, among other historical figures, from public schools because of his questionable policies toward Native Americans a move that one parent quite correctly said sounded almost like a parody of leftist activism. Sorry, it's real. They also took down a statue of Thomas Jefferson. You know, I mean, everybody is going to be canceled here if this continues to go on. Uh, but he then says, you know, kind of whataboutism in terms of how Trumpism is kind of a religion as well. 
And I don't necessarily disagree with that. But it's interesting to see a black American who's a nice guy, by the way. I've been reading Clarence for a long time, and I he's the kind of guy I'm sure I could have a beer or coffee with, you know. Um, it's interesting to see him call a halt. Now, in the same thing, uh, the editorial cartoon in the New Trib, uh, Scott Stantis is the editorial cartoonist, shows uh, a little cartoon, you know, speech bubble, if you will, uh, that says campus free speech and shows two arrows hitting it, cancel and culture. And even the arrows are probably, you know, as an indigenous American, I'm indigenous. I am somewhat concerned. But um, the editorial essentially says, at the end it says, we'd add a sense of humor and tolerance, both a key part of the history of education in Hyde Park, will help. Uh, Now, a new university is being founded, the University of Austin, which is based on the concept that uh, free academic speech is going to be allowed. Now, Austin is, you know, a little blue dot in the middle of Texas, so that's an interesting place to put it. So the president of the University of Chicago, or former university, former president of the University of Chicago, Robert Zimmer, is now chancellor, and he came out in favor of this, but then he got some pushback and retracted his views. Uh, so he kind of got canceled for having a non-cancel uh, community in a university setting. And the thought is that he should focus on... He's, he took that posture at U of C. So uh, he, the point of this is he should, you know, stick with his own university and stick to his guns. So there's a pushback on all this cancellation stuff. Yeah, and here's the uh, here's a letter to the editor about Jefferson was a role model, and they removed his statue from the New York City Council chamber. Uh, and and he was very, you know, that was the first real harsh political party uh, battle. The Federalist Party had been in power for eight years until Jefferson got elected in eighteen hundred. Uh, and he was a Democratic Republican. Maybe that's the name for the new center uh, party, the, the sensible center party. Considering how difficult the peaceful transfer of power is in other countries, this was no mean achievement, says Larry Vegan, B-I-G-O-N. Uh, in his inaugural address, Jefferson proclaimed, we are all Republicans, we are all Federalists. Can you imagine somebody getting up at an inauguration now and saying that? We are all Democrats, we are all Republicans? <laughs> now, uh, there are three letters about the Rittenhouse trial, one of which says, hey, facts matter. And this is from somebody who actually lives in Wisconsin, albeit Madison. And then there are two articles, both from people who do not live in uh, Wisconsin, who are, you know, one says, uh, he should not have been 
let off scot-free because he had a gun and he was in a place he shouldn't have been. Well, I don't know that he should have gotten off scot-free either. But. And then another one says the verdict was predictable and as a result, stick a fork in the U.S., it's done. Well, I think a lot of people feel the other way. I mean, this was a ridiculous situation in my opinion. But the letter writer from the person from Wisconsin, Tosif Anam, who if I had to guess, I'd say is probably a Muslim. As a Wisconsin resident and someone who has great affection for Kenosha, I don't, but I paid close attention to the Kyle Rittenhouse trial. It was a reminder that facts matter and we must trust the judicial process. And of course, somewhere else in here, I think Jesse Jackson, who looks bad, said, oh, I don't have any faith in it. Well, he had faith in it when OJ got let out, right? And he has faith in it when these, you know, gangbangers get ankle bracelets, I guess. We are a nation of laws. And if there's one thing I learned in my brief, unhappy legal writing career, it's like, you know, every court is different. And now they're going to go after him federally, of course. Uh, we are a nation of laws, American judicial... America's judicial system serves to provide justice and solve legal disputes. In Rittenhouse's trial, I believe the justice system completed its process. Media personalities and political figures portrayed Rittenhouse as the aggressor. Their words sought to influence the court of public opinion. But as we once again learned, what matters most is the court of law. I urge people to have faith in the judicial system and trust the legal process and not to try to convict people based on bias. Well, that's heartening. And I don't know how, honestly, you could watch the video of that and, you know, cast any doubt on the fact that he was acting in self-defense. These people were following him, you know, or chasing him. One of them had a gun. The other had a skateboard. Now... Here's an interesting thing. Uh, there's two full-page ads taken out by a guy named uh, Byron Allen. You may remember him. He was on, he had a TV show, which I hated. So he runs the Allen Media Group, right? And McDonald's has not spent a sufficient amount of budget with him. So he hates them. And he is all over... Uh, these texts that got out from the president of McDonald's uh, to Lori Lightfoot, where he appeared to blame the deaths of Chicago children, Jaslyn Adams and Adam Toledo, on their parents. Well, Bobby Rush, he quotes, is horrified that blame uh, the parents for these shootings. Deplorable message. Unacceptable. That... Proclaims Black Lives Matter. Now, this wasn't like the cops shooting them. This was they were at a McDonald's and somebody, you know, popped them. Now, we cannot imagine that this was related to their patronage of McDonald's, right? So, you know, to criticize their parenting is obviously commonsensical, but... Um, because I, I imagine they were somehow involved with gangs, right? But uh, unless they were innocent victims, I don't know. But 
how did this tax get out? You know, and you would think that, you know, Byron Allen is this noble guy, but he's really just trying to bring the heat on uh, McDonald's to put put some ad budget in his hands. And nobody probably knows that, you know, who reads this. Very few people, let's put it that way. So that guy's probably going to get canceled and fired. Um, but the, the moral of the story these days, just keep your mouth shut. That's the message. Or else you'll lose your big job. Or just parrot all this BLM bullshit, you know. Now, uh, Steve Chapman writes a great column, but the headline, Biden's letter on gas prices, a lame ruse. I thought lame was politically incorrect. Yeah. But he says the thrust of his column is that blaming rapacious oil executives for the price of gasoline is a delusion that arises only when prices increase. If the myth were true, prices at the pump would be high and stay high month after month and year after year. It's that simple. Um, And then he goes into some detail here. But basically, it's supply and demand. The Saudis are playing cartel, the Russians. Um, Americans are driving more, so there, there it is. More demand, tight supply, prices go up. The power of oil companies, on, on the other hand, doesn't change much, if any. If anything, it's probably less than it used to be. Now, he says there's no problem with Biden coming out and investigating the oil companies. Everybody does it. Bush did it. And then you talk about the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. This is a well, well uh, dog-eared playbook, shall we say. But the trouble arises, says, uh, says Chapman, if, if, if Biden actually believes his own rhetoric. <laughs> you know, never believe your own bullshit. That's one of my rules. That approach would probably backfire by causing producers to cut output, putting upward pressure on prices. Biden's best option is to be patient, which politicians can't do, especially when the election's coming up, and claim credit when they decline, as high prices tend to do, under the relentless pressure of market forces. The cure for high prices generally is high prices because people stop using the stuff, and then you have to lower the price to get the demand back up. And here's, you know, I try to use these patent quotes in my business, which is probably why I lose clients. Maybe Biden remembers a scene from the 1970 film Patton about the World War II general. After he unleashes a blood-curdling outburst at his staff officials, or staff officers, at, uh, during, an aide confides, you know something, general, sometimes the men can't tell when you're acting and when you're serious. And Patton replies, it's not important for them to know. It's only important for me to know. And we hope Joe doesn't really believe his own BS on this, you know. I had an old boss who just died, actually. As all old bosses do. And he used to say, bullshit is my bread and butter. And I think the corollary to that is, don't believe your own bullshit. Pardon my profanity. But uh, those are... I'm keeping that. I may share that on Facebook. So, that's it for today. Uh, So, listener, keep listening.
I'm on the podcast is on the endangered species list. But if I if I have even one listener, you know, I'm like Lawrence of Arabia when he's out in the northern deserts. And if he has but one follower, he'll continue to lead. And if I have one listener, I'll keep talking. You know, it's nice to talk to people. Especially when you don't get interrupted, right? That's the one good thing about a podcast is you don't get interrupted. So, so that's today's 45 minutes of your life. You'll never get back monologue and uh, live long and prosper. If I don't uh, do another podcast before Thanksgiving, have a good holiday. And, uh, you know, keep listening. I'll keep talking. Maybe people will catch up over the Thanksgiving holiday having nothing else to do.